everyone to another episode of Downton Gabby. We have missed you so much, but we have been looking forward to the Downton Abbey movie for months and months and months, and we are so happy to be here with you all to talk about it. So much to talk about. I'm Teresa in Brooklyn. I'm Brandy in Los Angeles. And I'm Shannon in Oakland. Here we are, reunited, and it feels so good. I just want to know how many times have you guys seen it so far? I've only seen it once, saw it opening night at the Alamo Draft House in San Francisco, and I had the perfect crowd. Super rowdy. It was really fun. Were people dressed up? Just a few, and I complimented them in the bar beforehand. Um, But it was just a really rowdy crowd, so when we first saw Downton, everyone started clapping. Lots of clapping throughout. Uh, Shocked. You know, with the Mosley shocking scene, everybody went nuts. And then, of course, um, you know, uh, Thomas's big kiss, also a huge moment. So it was really, really fun crowd. I, I loved it. This, this is probably a good time to say we're going to spoil the hell out of this movie. So <laughs> if you haven't seen it yet, I would say... Honestly, I don't know if you're going to be that surprised by anything, but um, you should, you know, just just press pause, go see the movie and then come back. Um, Brandy, tell me about your experience seeing the film. Um, I did go by myself because no one else wanted to see. It. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was fine. Um, my theater was definitely full of mostly me and some senior citizens. So, you know, that Saturday afternoon matinee. Um, but it was delightful. I mean, it, it was really just a lot of fun to like see all our old friends again. And I mean, it just felt like a supersized, very good episode where they had drone shots that they could never afford right. before, apparently. <laughs> so I saw the movie on the 19th, which I think is the night before the official premiere. But for some reason, my local Alamo Draft House had a screening that night which was sold out completely. I met six of my friends there. We wore tiaras and pearls, and I wore a black velvet opera coat, and my friend wore a big um, apron, a la Mrs. Patmore. And we just (laughs) had a really, really good time. And there were some people sitting near us who were also totally dolled up. Shout out to your friend who wore the apron, because honestly, people don't dress as the downstairs staff when the option is presented to dress up, right? You just automatically go for the sparkles, but... Yeah, Melissa, shout out to you. Um, She is a hardcore fan. It was great. We laughed our heads off when we saw her. I had a friend text me. She's like, I know you don't watch garbage TV, but on what, what, watch what happens live. They had a Downton Abbey drag competition and there's been so many magazine covers that people just keep sending me. Um, my friend Alexis just sent me the cover to town and country magazine that features Downton Abbey. She said she's saving it for me. So I'll report back on what's in there. Of course she gets Town and Country. <laughs> My very, very good friend Kristen is the design director of Town and Country, and she brought magazines for everyone in our group of seven. So we all had that issue. <laughs> well, it made $14 million over this weekend, and it has an 84% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so I think it's a hit. And actually... It did. It made more money than that. I don't know what you're looking at, Shannon, but it made $31 million just in the United States. So we're talking huge hit for the budget. What has always been really fun about the show is the intense fandom. I don't know of any other historical show, maybe Outlander, that comes close 
but nothing like Downton. I think like, you know, this is also we're recording this the day after the Emmys where the Game of Thrones had its swan song and however you feel about the final season, like we just don't have a lot of these communal things anymore. And I love the like watch it every week and obsess over it thing. Like that's one of the reasons that I've gotten really into succession because I think like even though it's a much smaller audience, the people who are watching it are online talking about it every Sunday. And like we when there isn't a Sunday show that's doing that, I feel a hole in my life. I really do. But you know, I think Downton always had this great mix of you can take it seriously and you can make fun of it. And it's quite feminist. You know, we've never found another show like it. That's definitely something that we discussed before when we were doing it week by week is like you could take something seriously that has all these silly elements and, you know, is just in the end a fun show and it can still explore serious themes. Like not everything has to be the fucking Handmaid's Tale in order to be exploring serious themes at times, you know? Brandy, I, I see in the notes that you're disappointed we didn't get the murder mystery that you wanted. I also saw it at the Alamo. So, of course, we had the pre-show that had like the Gosford Park preview in it. And I remember talking about that when we sort of, you know, when the movie was officially announced, we did a podcast of full of blatant speculation slash uh, extremely outlandish fantasies. And, of course, I wanted the murder mystery. I mean, this, like, Dolores Umbridge cousin could have gotten murdered oh, yeah. at any time. Oh, yeah. I would have been happy. I mean, that would have been a great twist. And I can't believe we didn't have one wedding. That was shocking. I really thought, I wonder if they filmed anything for Daisy and Andy and then like just didn't show it because for all of the mention of weddings, I really thought we were at least going to see like a flash forward thrown together thing at the end or something. Yeah. And Maggie Smith is shutting the door for more movies since she's effectively killing herself off. Uh, based on her final scene. She's like, I'm done, Julian. Yeah, I think she sat down with Julian and said, this please kill me because I'm not doing any more of these movies. But I actually, the scene with her and Mary was probably my favorite scene of the whole film. And I really liked it partly because like time slowed down. Like it was an actual really long scene. Mm-hmm. After every, the scenes on the, in this movie and in the show are so short and they cut between yeah. things so much. That just sitting with them and having this conversation, I I really love that scene. And I love that Violet was just being really earnest and and sweet and um, telling Mary she's going to be the frightening old lady, (laughs) which was great. Which she will, which she totally will. And, and of course, it, it like, everyone in, in the theater was definitely, like, weepy and, like, we're never going to see the Dowager again and, you know, stuff like that. I was just really caught off guard that I didn't know it was going to be an intense action movie like Speed, you know, when they're trying to get those chairs out of the rain and everyone <laughs> is freaking out. Can we do it? You know, that was uh, on the edge of my seat. I had some uh, sympathy for Mary there in as a person who has to plan events that I don't want to plan as part of my job. It is a fucking annoying thing to set up the chairs, okay? It's terrible. I just love that later she talks about it as like a turning point for her <laughs> when I was putting out those chairs in the rain. And I was like, wow, Julian, only you can really just be like, this is a real moment instead of being like, I just have to do this fucking chore. I know that they're short staffed now, but 
why exactly did they have to put out all the chairs the night before? <laughs> There'll be no time in the morning. <laughs> it's like midday for the servants, 9 a.m. I don't, I just didn't understand what, <laughs> what was going on at all. Okay, I love the movie. Of course I love the movie. But there were things in this film that I was just like, what the hell is happening here? Oh, that was a big one. Why are you out in the middle of the night in the pouring rain dealing with chairs that other people can deal with the next morning? And I'm just thinking, Mary, you need to learn to delegate better if you're going to be running this estate. Really, that storyline was given like more dramatic music than an actual assassination attempt on the king? No, completely! Like, literally the most tense moment in the entire movie was, are we going to get these chairs out of the rain? Like, I was like, wow, I love Julian. This is like, we really need this right now with how intense our country is. Like, why did this show have to end right when everything got intense? Like, I need the biggest issue to be, can we get the chairs in? Right. Like, don't you think everyone in England was watching this and being like, if only Brexit was this level of problem. Yeah. Uh, the good old days where all we had to worry about was getting those chairs set up <laughs> in the rain. And Edith's stress, it's just too big. I mean, it was. It's just it too big. Really big. How are we going to do it? Has the dress arrived? Has the dress arrived? Has the dress arrived? I felt she asked that like five times and I was like, bitch, how did you not bring a backup? You're a marchioness now and you don't own a single backup ball gown. Like I wanted like Aquafina from Crazy Rich Agents to pull up and be like, I got you, girl. So uh, speaking of frocks, I really want to talk about the frocks and I want to talk about the sparkly headbands, which are now all tiaras because everyone is married so they can all wear tiaras now. So they're even bigger and more spectacular than they used to be. Yep. What did you think of the, the dresses? I really liked that last black and white one that Mary wore. Like, that was really the main one that stuck in my head afterwards. Otherwise, like, you have a note here in, in the notes, Teresa, that the fashion wasn't quite as striking as it has been at other time periods. Right. And I agree with that. Like... I don't know if it's just because it's not new, daring things that they're wearing or what, but I mean, those middle seasons are really the like beginning of the twenties are the like choice yeah. era for the really cool dresses. Although Mary's hats were on point. She had the most gorgeous hats. Oh my God. Yeah. That, that like soft gray one, I like nearly gasped. It was so beautiful. I'm still partial to like the first few seasons, you know, with those kind of pre twenties, dresses those were always my favorite style of dresses i just found that the colors and the fabrics they were just kind of like it was a little muted like the whole palette of the movie was a little muted compared to some things like i feel like other than the like very verdant green of the estate with all of these like establishing shots like everything inside was sort of like variations on a gold beige palette yeah, yeah. I, I will say that that um, I liked Edith's dress, the ball gown. Finally, mm -hmm. um, worth waiting for. I really liked that ball gown. I didn't, I didn't love her other clothes compared to how awesome she used to look when she was a working girl in London. These were just kind of bleh, but. I loved her underwear. Yeah, that was really fun. We never get to see undergarments, so that was really fun. And the like the silk robe that she put on too was so beautiful. I was like, I gotta get a silk robe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she puts on the robe and she never really does it up, you know, it's just sort of lying open so we can continue to look at her beautiful underwear. <laughs> I wonder if at some point Laura Carmichael was like, Y'all, 
I'm trying to get cast in other things. <laughs> Can we show that I'm hot? Because she never really got to be the hot sister. And then you always see her on the red carpet and stuff, and you're like, damn, she's cool. She looks good. I really appreciated seeing her bosoms also, which you never see. <laughs> okay, Therese, this is a family podcast. Is there something you want to tell us on bisexual visibility day today, Teresa? Hey, you know, when I see something I like, I'm happy to share it with the world. I did also think she looked really she good. She looked fantastic. I just wish she had something more to say in this. Instead of being like, throwing a luncheon is just so hard. Yeah. And I'm pregnant. And that was it. And where's my dress? That's like all she said. So. Well, I think lost opportunity because she and Mary seem to have come to an understanding with each other in a way that was almost like unpredictable from even the, the strife of the final season. So something with how their relationship has evolved since Edith has outranked her, which seems to have weirdly brought an equilibrium to their relationship. Like... Now they each have cards to play, kind of. I mean, I just would have loved a substantial scene between the two of them talking about, like, what their lives are now. And I feel like that could have been a really easy thing to slide in with all the discussion, the inevitable discussion of the future of Downton. Right. I feel like overall I needed way more Mary and Edith. And I think it, they kept hinting, you know, that Edith and Bertie are so modern. So it would have been really nice to see that in contrast with Mary. Because she's not. She's, you know, she follows tradition. And so it would have been nice to see that come up more. I did really enjoy when they went to see Princess Mary for tea, how Edith got introduced first. Because she was of the highest rank. And then Cora. And then Lady Mary Talbot. I definitely did not notice that, but that is hilarious. There's one scene where they walk out and, and Tom is talking to Smith. We'll talk about that later. But... They're, they talk a little bit, and then Edith says, come on, Mary. <laughs> it's like Mean Girls or something. She's like, Regina George? Like, let's go. Come on. Let's go. It was really interesting. And Mary follows without a word. She didn't put up a fight with Edith. It was interesting. I just feel like this whole plot was more about, you know, uh, the, the bachelor with Tom. You know, who's going to marry Tom? You know, and he's got love at first sight from the most boring woman in the world that I got her confused with another boring uh, British <laughs> brunette, which Brandy had to correct me in the notes. I don't mind Tuppence Middleton, but the character wasn't given too much to do. And she does look exactly like What's-Her-Face from the Fantastic Beasts movies. Like, how are they not related? I mean, I couldn't pick Sienna Miller from a lineup, so you know, there's a lot of samey white girls out there in Hollywood and, and British movies. Well, she did a great job staring, looking pitiful, so she did her I job. I actually thought they were kind of cute together. I mean, better that than, who was that evil school teacher who kept coming to dinner and stuff? Miss Bunting. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, if we ever want Tom to be happy again, I think the only line that grated me when, when he was like, oh yeah, it doesn't hurt anymore being a widower, I was like, Really? I mean, maybe it's a different kind of pain. Maybe it's less acute. But you're really telling me that after seven years, you have no more pain over what happened to your beautiful young wife who died in childbirth? Like, Tom, come on. At least he and Mary weren't having an affair. Oh, thank mm -hmm. God. I was so worried that all of that Tom and Mary shipping was going to turn into an actual plot point. So I'm incredibly grateful that Julian didn't 
think to bring them together. It's it's more interesting that she just has an a, this loyalty and faith in him that's outside of any type of romantic relationship. Like if if all of a sudden they introduce that, then their dynamic would become way less interesting to me. Right. I, I did like um, Violet liking the whole thing between Tom and and Smith. I thought that was really funny. Like, okay, the way we actually get this estate is because Tom is going to marry Smith. We got McGonagall versus Umbridge again. <laughs> I loved all the, the the star sightings. Also, Bernard from Four Weddings and a Funeral. Who? He was the butler that came with the queen. Oh, my God. Oh, and Mark Addy as the grocer. I mean, come on. Robert Baratheon is selling these goods. <laughs> Of course, that's right. Oh, I love Mark Addy because The Full Monty is one of my favorite movies, and I just always want to hug him every time I see him because I just picture him in The Full Monty being all sad. I love that scene. That scene in in, in Mr. Bakewell's store was just really fantastic. I can't believe it made it through the edit. Like, it wasn't, like, super necessary, but it was, like, (laughs) pure Downton. I was, like, kind of waiting for that to turn into a love interest for Mrs. Patmore. He's married. He's married. Don't you remember Mrs. Bakewell was really mean to Ethel because she became a prostitute after she had to leave Downton? That was Mrs. Bakewell, but he seems so jolly. How could his wife be such a shrew? But that was Mrs. Bakewell who was really mean to Ethel. Did you do a lot of rewatching, Teresa, or do you just literally remember this? You know what? I remember Mrs. Bakewell being mean to Ethel, but I did watch the Downton Abbey YouTube channel where they have a sort of infinite number of short videos about every possible character and topic. And they did have one on Ethel. So I did get to refresh a little bit on Ethel, but I, I do remember Mrs. Bakewell was the one who was mean to her. Wow. I do think that, you know, we another of our speculative things about the movie was that there could be some sort of like revenge of an old maid. And uh, none of the previous maids who were treated extremely badly... Jane. <laughs> ...made any type of appearance. Oh, Jane. I mean, were there any maids? That There's the boring brunette woman who's with Molesley. I cannot remember her name. And I literally, when she came on screen, I was like, I can't believe they let her talk in this movie. I forgot about her. Baxter. I can't believe Baxter and Molesley are still just being like... I like you, I like you, I like you, and not doing anything about it. Well, I feel like we should go downstairs. We haven't really talked about the coup, but I laughed so hard when it was like the big plot is we're gonna we're gonna serve the king and queen and nobody can stop us because we just love serving so much. And it was like, oh guys. This is a commercial for the monarchy and the class system. I thought it was interesting how like sort of Anna basically takes charge including drugging people and locking people into rooms. And, like, Carson doesn't really say anything. He just, like, harumphs a little bit. And, like, in in past days, Thomas would have been, like, right out of there snitching to the royal butler page of the backstairs, right? Right away. He doesn't say anything. It's become a very passive I think, uh, downstairs crew. That's a very interesting thought, Teresa. And I feel like, like, let's say that this was like the first draft of the script that you read. Like you could say, what if Thomas knows that the other guy is into him before all of the scheming goes down and he could potentially use it to his leverage to join the Royal crew. Oh, I mean, and go with his boyfriend 
then I would be quite sympathetic if he snitched on everyone if that was uh, the potential reward. Yeah, because nobody really believes in him at Downton. I mean, I thought that was really sad how everybody was like, he can't do it. Bring Carson back. The suddenly healthy Carson. Which, what? Because he was like, he was flustered in like one scene where everyone was like, what the fuck's going on? I like that Lord Grantham was like, I'm glad that he stood up for himself when Mary was asking if he was going to get sacked, which was just like so, like, seriously, Mary? Seriously. Such a bitch. <sighs> I mean, she's just a bitch at heart. I love her, but she's a bitch. Yeah. Um, but as far as a mechanism to get him out into the world having his own little storyline, obviously I was a huge fan of that. I really found myself being really sympathetic to Thomas during this movie, and I actually got teary-eyed thinking about how hard he's tried to be happy and how it keeps getting taken away from him. And I just thought that was really interesting because he was such a villain for so long with O'Brien. And But we really see, you know, it's because he's been really trapped in this, you know, this role that he doesn't want to be, you know. So I, I don't know. I, I was really surprised how much, like, I was really touched by Thomas in this movie. I was very touched by him as well. And the scene where he's, he goes to that, like, midnight rave, whatever that was, um, with that guy and like sees men dancing with each other and mm-hmm. drinking and, and the look on his face, I mean, and just full of this wonderment <laughs> and amazement. Yeah. I really think that um, Rob James Collier has been an underrated part of the ensemble. Like, I just think he's a wonderful actor and he's really imbued humanity into Thomas, even when he's had to do those sort of comic soap opera villain type plots and you know you see i i had a lot of feelings about even just like seeing that you know he's still wearing the glove to cover up his injury that he gave to himself to get out of the war you know like uh he carries his character backstory with him physically in a way that a lot of the characters don't and so i just like i'm like hit in the chest every time i see him and he's always been one of my favorites but like I just, I'm so glad that the movie actually gave him something worthwhile to do um, and let him kiss a hug. Yeah, I, I agree. Like that, the, yeah, the, I agree that the glove really struck me too because I think we all have a real affinity for the season where, you know, he was in the war and what his character got to experience, you know, when he was uh, recovering. And I, yeah, I don't know. I just found myself like really touched by his character and just like, man, I just want this guy to finally be happy, you know? And like, I don't even see him as a villain. I see him as a tragic character. Yeah. I I was so glad. I I kept saying hashtag boyfriend for Barrow, hashtag boyfriend (laughs) for, it was very (laughs) exciting for me. Like Julian heard us. He really heard us, you know. I couldn't quite figure out whether the two of them had done more than that. Like for a while, I thought that they had gone back and boned. I don't think so. I think I think he was taken by surprise by that kiss. But I hope that they keep up a correspondence. Yes, I do too. And the crowd went wild with his kiss. Oh my God. Everybody was like, I thought people were going to like stand up and clap. Like it was probably the biggest moment of the whole fan experience in the crowd. So yeah, it was pretty funny with the downstairs crew going back. Uh, I did love how people just knew things. You know, Anna just knew that that woman was stealing stuff. And then Isabel just knew that Lucy was the cousin's daughter. You know, (laughs) know, 
got to give it to Julian. You know, I, I'm not going to explain why. I'll just be like, I just know. I actually kind of saw that daughter thing coming from a mile away. Mm. I have to admit. Um, and the, and truthfully, I also saw the ladies maid stealing tchotchkes from the house. Oh, totally. As soon as someone asked, where's my whatever? I was like, oh, one of them's a thief. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she just happens to be in the morning room, you know? So I don't know, but like, I feel like Anna was sort of just taking care of everything. Like, she was kind of the new Mrs. Hughes in a way. Like, yeah. knew what everyone was doing all the time, knew how to fix everything. She had her headquarters in the boot room, and she was running the show. And then she was just like, oh, yeah, and my worthless husband can't help. So. <laughs> and I love that Bates barely talked. I was like, maybe... He had literally, like, three yeah. lines. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he'll get killed off before the next the next movie too. I mean, don't waste your budget on that one. <laughs> and to all our listeners who love uh, Mr. Bates, well, you know what you got into by you, listening. You, know, to you us. made it this far with us. We managed to all find each other and bond over this hatred of Mr. Bates. <laughs> but it was kind of interesting. Bates and Carson both didn't say their annoying misogynistic shit that they usually do. Like they both were very tame. So Carson didn't seemed too ill to me my my theory that it was that it was a misdiagnosis by dr clarkson as usual never (laughs) never he is a medical maven don't you dare say he gets something wrong i mean it's like getting right up out of that wheelchair and walking across the room (laughs) there he is in his vegetable garden hightailing it to abby (laughs) Just the like dramatic shot of Carson walking up the gravel road was oh god really good. <laughs> Here he comes. He's gonna separate that wine himself. I'll pour the wine through the cheesecloth, please. Get out of my seat. <laughs> Seriously, this is a really serious question. How shocked were you to see the royal butler doing the wine thing at Carson's desk? I mean, incredible. I thought it was going to come to blows. I was like, shocking. <laughs> I could have used more Mrs. Patmore too. I like, I like, I didn't, we didn't get much of her and Mrs. Hughes together. You know, and I still want their detective show. True detective season four now. I mean, Robert and Cora didn't have a whole lot to do. Either. No, they really didn't. You know, they're settled in. It was like everybody who settled didn't have very much to do. So then we get focused on Tom and Daisy and Thomas. And for better or for worse, like those are the characters who are still left to see like how romance shakes out for them. And then we have to watch whatever the fuck Daisy's storyline was here. Okay, let's get into it. I almost out loud like was like what the fuck in the theater to her final like speech to Andy. Like, "Oh, we're just the same. This is I can't believe you did that for me." Like, are you kidding me? The tantrum that he threw where he broke the boiler, that shows that he's a sexy, rebellious man who, like, also wants to say, fuck the establishment and rage against the machine. I mean, no. He was just being a little pissy boy because you all were, like, giving tea to the hot plumber, which, like, there's not a lot of excitement at Downton, okay? If there's a hot plumber that comes through, can you just let the ladies have their moment without fucking ruining it, Andy? It's not about you. 
That was another moment in the film where I just did not understand what was happening. (laughs) First of all, why is Andy doing this? It makes no sense. And then secondly, why is that the thing that convinces Daisy that she's going to marry him after all? Daisy needs to run for parliament, okay? She has things to do. She doesn't need to be saddled with this very angry, jealous man. No, she's happy now. She's so happy in the kitchen. (laughs) Oh, I love your Daisy voice. I love it so much. No, Therese, what we need is we need a Daisy Poldark crossover. This is like, why do we keep having to lessen and lessen our dreams for Daisy? Like, remember when we would have just been content if she had gotten the farm and gotten to make some fucking jam? Like, but now I'm like, it's got to be bigger than that because this is on the level of how mad I get that they won't just let Trixie be a doctor on Call the Midwife. Yeah, you know? seriously. It's like, it's right there. It's sitting right there. You have everything built into this character to allow them to go for more. And yet they're still just standing in the basement preparing their instruments for someone else. I mean, yep. it's just infuriating. It really is. It really is infuriating. And it's like, even with her making the jam, it's like she could be an entrepreneur and then she could like franchise her jam business. I mean, she's really smart. Yeah. She could definitely do something more than just be the, the cook, underling cook, whatever her title is, and marry fucking Andy. Like they've had a parade of dunces for her romance interests all through the seasons. And we're really like, this is where we are. We're just ending on Andy. Okay. What about the dead guy? <laughs> William? What What happened to Mr. Mason? Do you think he's dead? Mr. Mason is off with Spratt. Who knows? Spratt. He and Spratt and Aunt Rosamond are having tea together at Dr. Clarkson's. Yeah. I did miss Rose. I would have liked to have Rose there. Yeah. But we've known that Lily James wasn't going to be in the movie. But Yeah. Her career is too big now, but it would have been fun. She just brings, like, a vibrancy to things. That would have been fun. I love Rose. Well, what did you guys think of this Princess Mary storyline that literally her big realization is like, I'll stay with this shitty husband for the children. That's another classic Julian message. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is a new message. I've seen this a million times. Why are we wasting screen time on this? You know that I did a bunch of reading on this because... I needed to know what the actual historical facts were to all of this. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I have a few points to make. A few points. By the way, dear listeners, my one-page notes document has become a six-page notes document because of Teresa's historical thoughts. So let's go. Let's let us go. First of all, why don't the Downton staff know what they're supposed to do when the king and queen come to visit? Mm. Why are they completely shocked by this protocol that every great house in England should be completely aware of? First of all, rhetorical question. Secondly, when the king and queen come to stay at your house, you get like two months notice. You don't get two days notice because that's just messed up. But I would like to talk about Princess Mary who apparently was a big tomboy when she was young, and her brother David, future um, abdicated King Edward, um, basically thought she would never get married because she was so quiet and shy, and they never let her out of the palace or gave her pretty clothes to wear. And then finally she got sort of hooked up with with this guy, uh, Henry Lassell's the sixth Earl of Harewood, because he was super, super rich. And so there are a lot of 
rumors about how they got together. And also, there's nothing really definitive about him being a total jerk. Like, he was 15 years older than her, and your basic, you know, garden variety, dull British man. But we don't really know that he was a total asshole or not. His son seems to think that they had a good marriage. Um, but she would have never even brought up the idea of divorce because she was this very dutiful royal person who would never dream of getting a divorce because you just didn't do that. So she would have just stayed in the country and been happy with her horses and cows. And, you know, she lived in, uh, in up into 1965, as a matter of fact. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and this is my favorite fun fact. So they kept referring to her husband, Henry Lassels, and I kept thinking, Lassels, Lassels, that name sounds so familiar. He's the cousin of Tommy Lassels, who, if you watch The Crown... Oh, he goes with, uh, with Philip on his trip, right? He's the private secretary yeah. and has the mustache, the big mustache. Mm-hmm. The big mustache. The big mustache, yeah. So that's his cousin, Tommy <laughs> Lassels, um, played by Pig Torrens who plays uh, the evil uncle in Poldark. Yes. The end. Yes. Oh, man. We can start having some crossovers pretty soon here. So they did an actual trip to Yorkshire in 1927, and they met with disgruntled striking coal miners? Well, the coal I miners mean, had been on strike. It had been settled. But they felt like they needed to get out of um, you know their little world and start moving around and seeing the com- people. In Wales, in yeah. the north. I can see why Julian doesn't want to talk about that. They do, in the film, make reference to the miners and the strikes uh, a couple times, just like as asides. I just think of Gentleman Jack now when they start talking about mining. I'm like, ooh, God, I hope she's sinking her pits. She needs that money. <laughs> yeah, this was the thing with, with this particular king and queen who did start traveling around and meeting the people, and it was like a goodwill tour, basically. Oh, and the other thing that I think is really most important about all of this is that tiara that Queen Mary wore at the ball. Do you remember the tiara that had, like, emeralds, like, dripping mm-hmm. off of it all around? So mm-hmm. that's a really, really famous tiara, and I think Queen Elizabeth's favorite tiara it's called the Vladimir tiara. And so it has all these emeralds hanging all around it. You can take out the emeralds and substitute pearls. So you could have pearls all around it. Or you can take out the pearls and just leave it without the additional adornment for casual days. For your casual tiara days. For going to the grocery store. Okay, that's my history report. Very good. I love it. Thank you. So straight details. Um... I was glad to see Henry pop up at the end, you know? He drove in from where he's been, I don't know, his vampire self off fucking a witch on the oh, other show that he's Don't talk on. about that terrible show. <laughs> oh, Discovery of Witches, worst best show on TV right now. Side, yeah. side, side question. Since we all saw it at an Alamo draft house, did you also have the long recap? Yes, I did. And yeah. I managed to snap a clip of that old melty face and <laughs> post that to my Instagram before the movie with a plea that that storyline would be resolved. But unfortunately, we're, we'll have to wait for the sequel. I thought that the person narrating the long recap was a little bit too into Henry, into Matthew Good, the actor. 
I was almost like surprised that our nickname for for him wasn't used. Like I forgot like that we don't have that kind of influence. I was like, oh yeah, Mr. Yum Yum. Oh, they're they're seriously not gonna call him Mr. Yum Yum? Oh yeah, we made that up and only we say it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was like a whole train of thought. Totally, because as soon as I saw him, I was like, oh Mr. Yum Yum. I really liked his entrance. I liked him popping out of the car. I liked him racing up the stairs. Racing. And then adjusting his suit at the top of the stairs. <laughs> That was great. Well, Therese, you're going to have to watch a Discovery Witches now, and you're going to have to weigh in on your opinion after we just had a fervent opinion sesh. You're going to have to watch it. All right. So do we think that they are going to make another movie? It's such a hit. Everyone seems so shocked that it's making all this money, and I'm like, why are you shocked? Like, there's a huge contingent of people who love these kind of, like, mid-budget costume dramas, and so few of them get made for the big screen anymore, even though that's like where you want to see it. Well, and it was really, I was really surprised to see that Julian could write a movie. Like the plot really worked. I was like, he did it. Cause it could have just been meandering all over the place. I mean, there were a lot of meals, but you know, I really felt like it was a pretty tight story. And so I'm like, yeah, Julian keep pumping out a, a movie every year. I actually feel like he does better on tight storylines. Like, Gosford Park obviously is a great movie. I mean, he won a fucking Oscar for that. And I think, like, you know, a lot of the Christmas specials and stuff have been really strong because they tend to contain that type of storyline where it all gets wrapped up. At least one thing gets all wrapped up. And I, yeah, I think having the short time period and all of these arcs that got their service was really nice it was really nice to see yeah it all paid off and before the movie came out i was you know joking with a friend and i was like they're gonna have an amazing rotten tomato score and he was like no way and he texted it to me today and i was like yep 84 percent. i told you like the fandom is real because it's like you have to admit that like if this this succeeded yes. at what it was meant to do. I think it'll be just as successful to do a second film. I don't think that this fan base is going to get tired. I mean, we we are the Fast and Furious <laughs> of the period piece crowd. No, totally. I would watch another one every few years and, you know, get up to the point where now it's about the next generation during the, the wars and all of that, you know? I'm totally into it. I think there's... There's no reason not to tell that kind of a long-term story if the audience is there for it and the actors are willing to come back. You know, I just had a thought. If Birdie had actually gone on that tour with the Prince of Wales, do you think he could have convinced him to get married and settle down, thus changing the direction of the English monarchy? (laughs) That would be the real revelation that all this time down has existed in this other timeline. Where, like, all this other stuff is going to happen. He was a massive BFF of Hitler's. Yeah. He would, uh, he would have completely capitulated. Yeah. And thrown yeah. his support to Germany in World War II. And if you watch The Crown, it's all explained there for you. Um, so it's probably good Bertie didn't go. Well, I'm pretty convinced that What's-His-Face, who's Marigold's dad, is still alive somewhere in Germany and is going to end up assassinating Hitler in Glorious Bastard style. <laughs> so I think we can take care of that, like, really well. So we should talk about uh, plot lines that haven't resolved yet as ideas for the next <laughs> film. Yeah, I mean, I'm still gunning for a dude ranch. <laughs> Trip to America! I mean, it, the, you know, just every sequel you have to, like, travel to a new place, so, American Adventure. 
Yeah. I would finally like to see justice for the victims of Mr. Bates. What? He's a murderer, okay? Yeah. <laughs> he, he just is. There's no way that woman poisoned herself with a pie. It makes no sense. Well, that's kind of grim. And Mr. Green didn't push himself into the road. Yeah. And he didn't stop his own wife from poisoning someone else in this movie. Right. <laughs> he was probably like, here, I keep a double dose of sleeping drugs just for an occasion like this. <laughs> So that's my oh, that's God. my uh, wish to be resolved. How about you guys? I mean, melty face, old melty face. I mean, they they have the scene of Edith when she walks out to whatever the hell that like pillar thing they have on their grounds is, which is the same place where she and not Patrick have their last conversation, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, in that season. And so I, like, had already made this joke and already thought about that. But then, like, when she was sitting out there, I was like, you know what? It's definitely bullshit that that storyline never came back around. I don't I don't have anything to add. I just think that it's ridiculous that we've never gotten any type of closure about that weird guy who claimed he was Cousin Patrick. Okay. Shan- Shannon, what would you like resolved, finally? I mean, I still want to know what's going on with Spratt's column. I mean, I is it a hit? <laughs> has, it, has it transferred over to America, you know? Mm-hmm. Has his readership grown? I'm interested. Yeah, has it spun off into a book deal? Right. Right. Does he have a talk show now? I mean... Right. Do we think that Edith is still involved in the magazine in any way? Like, she says in the movie that she had a job that she loved, which I so feel you, girl, about that. But is she still involved? Do you think she takes the train to London maybe once a month to sit in on a meeting? I hope so. Maybe she's still the owner, but I doubt she gets to do it, like, day to day, right? She has to host all these people. That she doesn't even like. Which, there's another missed opportunity, too. Like, now Edith has, like, this, like, built-in social circle. Does she have a friend? Edith has never gotten to have, like, a friend. Other than that one chick who worked at the magazine who she was kind of, like, you know, briefly palsy with. That could be interesting. Totally. Mary doesn't have any friends, either. They both need some friends. I do think probably in the next movie we'll get more of the kids because, you know, true soap opera style, you have to start bringing in the next generation of characters. So I bet we'll get speaking roles for like Sibby and Marigold. And they'll just start speaking instead of being off in the distance. <laughs> they're always like a wide shot far away, Remind, reminding us that they're alive. I don't think we'll get the Dowager's funeral. I think it'll start after that. I don't think Julian's going to put us through that. So we kind of think there will be a sequel, and if there is one, we really hope that Julian will wrap up all the loose ends that we are so concerned about. Um, Thank you so much for listening. This was incredible fun talking about Downton with you all again. Our podcasts are all archived. You can get them on Apple Podcasts. You can get them at Trixie Films, which is my website where all the podcasts have moved, so TrixieFilms.com. You can find us on Facebook at Downton Gabby. You can find us on Twitter at Downton Gabby. Thanks so much, and we'll see you when there is a sequel. Thank you for listening. Thanks. Give me a kiss to build a dream on, and my imagination will thrive upon that kiss. Mm, sweetheart, I ask no more than this. 
I kiss the bell I dream on Give me a kiss before you leave me And my imagination will feed my hungry heart mm, Leave me one thing before we part I kiss the bell I dream on When I'm alone with my fancies I'll be with you Weaving romances Making believe they're true Oh, give me your lips for just a moment And my imagination will make that moment live Give me what you alone can give. A kiss the bell, the dream.